Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Liliana Gill, a host on the channel, and today I have the pleasure to talk to Dr. Elizabeth Reddy, who is the author of the book Alerta, Engineering on Shaky Ground, published by the MIT Press in 2023. Welcome to the show, Beth. Oh, thank you, Liliana. I am so excited to be here. This is um, a huge honor and, and yeah, it's super exciting. I'm very happy to be talking about your work today. Uh, to get us started, Beth, could you please tell us a bit about the book, how you came to this project and what has shaped it along the way? Oh, thank you. This is such a fun question to ask or to answer. <laughs> I hope it's fun to ask. I don't know. So the book is... I mean, it is about risk mitigation technology and in the in the sort of contemporary environmental monitoring kind of technologized world. Um, it takes as its centerpiece a, a technology um, called earthquake early warning, which is a, 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 a mode of integrating networks of sensors, rapid processing, and and signaling that can create a, a, a warning about an earth, can detect and create a warning about an earthquake that's, that's sort of spreading through the earth um, faster than the earthquake itself can actually spread through the earth. So basically because um, earthquakes can sometimes affect communities that are quite a ways away from the, their, their sources, their hypocenters, which is how we talk about the, the, not just the epicenter of the earthquake, but like how deep it is underground. So really like how much earth it has to move through. Um, this kind of technology can give people seconds, sometimes a minute, sometimes more, especially in Mexico City, um, to take some sort of emergency action. Um, So this book centers on Mexico, specifically Mexico City, as a site of technological innovation, um, as a site where people are puzzling over how how people, like a public, like people at large, relate to earthquakes and how the technologies they build might change that in a small way, but maybe in a useful way changing earthquakes from like things that could happen at any time and you have no notice to things that sometimes you have notice um, before they, they occur. Um, so I've been working on this book. This was a, this was another dissertation project. Um, and the story of its development is, is long. And actually it is at the end of the book itself. Uh, I included a methodological appendix um, at the, the, invitation of um, series editors, Matt Wisnowski and Gary Downey, um, they really allowed me to talk about everything that can go into doing um, ethnographic research and writing and thinking um, in a really expansive way to share those um, kinds of process insights with um, my uh, collaborators across disciplines. So um, the book itself is, um, I don't know if you've seen it, it's this beautiful, I have a copy here, this is like my last, uh, 
it's like it's it's uh i think that it is an object that makes me really happy it's um it's covered in these exclamation points of bright pink and orange um and it speaks to very anthropological concerns and concerns that are quite typical of of scholarship in environmental anthropology and STS, but it is also written to be approachable, I hope, to people who might not have our training, um, who might need some tools to understand the where anthropological insights come from and what they can do. Yes, absolutely. And speaking of methods, it's not exactly about method, but I had a question about history. The book starts with this brief history of life with earthquakes in Mexico City. And I was really struck by your account of the connection between Spanish colonization and the city's vulnerability to earthquakes today. And you also discussed the tragic earthquake of 1985 and the activism and solidarity networks it generated, among other key events. And I was wondering for you, what is the importance of reflecting on these historical threads how do they inform your ethnographic research? And yeah, how do these two come together? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not, uh, I think I, I noted this already. I am not a historian by, by any means, but I am a person who loves archives. Have you, do you spend much time in the archives at all? I did, yeah. And it's very hard for someone who's not trained as a historian. I'm also not trained as a historian, so it's a challenge. I just feel like a kid in a candy store with like no way. That's a terrible metaphor, actually. I don't, like, because my sweet tooth is not that, that developed. But like, I just feel like, yeah, I mean, to be more uh, particular, I feel like a, a, a the kid that I was in a bookstore. Like, I remember the first time I saw like a big bookstore, like Barnes and Noble. This is big, like marker of like my Midwestern childhood, right? Like I had this tiny little library that I got to go to from time to time. And then all of a sudden I got to see the place where all, where it seemed like there were so many more books and I just wanted to live there. <laughs> and that's how I feel when I go to archives. Like I feel that I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily trained in, um, a system for approaching different kinds of archival material in the kinds of sophisticated ways that I think some of my my historian colleagues and and mentors have been. Um, but I just feel a, a certain and certainly I've read, you know, I've read critically about the archives and about how like Derrida and Ann Stoller help us think about what we're doing with these with these materials, right? But I still feel like there's just this wealth and I'm just at a feast, right? <laughs> and I feel very greedy. So yeah, like I, um, so they're part of the, the archival work in this book is possible because of the, I think I'm not the only one who has that feeling in, in Mexico city. And uh, that, that of course that um, work of collection and compiling um, is always very political and the place it politically happens is Mexico City, at least in Mexico, where we have all these like really incredible kinds of um, ephemera and records and reports and um, th that, that have accumulated and been very purposefully accumulated in, in certain collections um, that I got to just kind of chill out in. But I mean, 
so that's that's one one answer to that question about history has to be about like that the like joy of spending time in those archival spaces and seeing what people have decided to collect um because so much of like how mexico city kind of seems to work as a capital city in mexico is and has been kind of by collecting stuff from elsewhere to tell the story of the nation in one particular place. And I think like Sandra Rosenthal has like written awesome stuff about this, like Patrimonio, where Patrimonio, who does Patrimonio belong to? All of us. Where does it live? Mexico City specifically. <laughs> and it's it's like this this super important kind of project to 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 wrangle with. Um but also, right, I found that um as I was um, encountering what I could encounter in various kinds of archival spaces or various kinds of, um, were, were these histories of Mexican life with earthquakes. And when I say various kinds, of course, I'm meaning um, records of, um, records from the nineties, records from since like 1985, records from before 1985, when we're talking about a moment of intense, like, sort of nationalism or nationalization of resources and then this like economic like destruction. <laughs> um, and then and then earlier and earlier yet. Um, so I guess um, when we're thinking about how people live with earthquakes, right? We're getting to this really important question for, for me about the ways that the material world and the social world interact. Um, and I think we, of course, in um, in anthropology, have these like very, very beautiful and, and traditions of environmental, ecological sometimes, or environmental anthropology that are really, really about taking different um, reckoning with those with those different kinds of um, material and and social and meaning laden. Um, entanglements of like, of like humans and, and, and their various kinds of non-human um, agents, forces, <laughs> uh, creatures, um, all that stuff uh, with which humans live. Um, but I think that one of the things that I'm really interested in right now, and I think that we have a community of folks who are really interested in that right now, um, is having um, really substantial conversations about the specificities of how those material realities um, are sort of um, frame and encounter kinds of um, like social social worlds. Um, and for me, those kinds of uh, like history is, is kind of the, allows me to explore the uh, expanse of, of, of time and experience over which and through which those kinds of encounters can can like unfold, right? So, um, so that's where uh, things like, you know, the the development of what we now call like as the Aztec Empire, um, and then the very uh, like the very political work of the conquest, and then the very political work of the, the drying of Mexico city, the canal building. Um, and then the very, the, the, the work of the, the city's growth, it's oil wealth. It's, um, it's 
accumulation, its position at the center of this nation is are all issues that are deeply related to the seismicity that this space experiences. And in order to tell these stories, um, I need to like get into not just the, the histories of narratives, like the narratives that people share, but also it's a, it's a way to, it, it invites me into interdisciplinary conversations with the geophysical um, historians and the, the kinds of like questions and, and concerns that structural engineers have ha long had. And that, um, and that helps kind of tell the, the, the story about what this, like what Mexico City is as a seismic place with like real like specificity um, behind it. Because um, yeah, like this, and this is also like kind of the anthropologist's work, right? It's like, I'm not just, I, I love these stories, but the reason they end up mattering is because of the physical stuff that happened, but also because they're linked up to the stories that people are telling today. So if you go to, to Mexico City, you are not going to have the exact same experience as me. Certainly, that's not how this works. But there are people who are really excited to talk about Mexico's lakes as the condition for its, um, its seismicity. And um, the drying of Mexico and its, and its conquest as another condition of Mexican seismicity. And so winding those together makes sense to me, I can put um, a lot of resources and data to telling that story. But then there are other kinds of historical questions, right? That like might facilitate, like I'm in which I might make connections that my, um, in my, my, the, the people that I work with might not be so excited about. So like this question of activism is definitely one of them, right? So it seems very clear to me from the evidence I have been able to like accumulate that people were organizing um, before the 1985 earthquake, um, right? Like, so Mexico has this huge um, boom in, in largely by powered by, by oil. Um, and it is providing all these services to all these people and then there is a crash in oil value and there's a crash in Mexican currency and there are, um, and the IMF gets involved and Mexico is drastically shrinking the services that it offers. Um, and historians write that Mexicans were up in arms. They were asking for these services. They were asking for these resources. And this was before the 85 quake. The 85 quake was like a terrible disaster. It um, like really, really freaking heartbreaking, um, a, a heartbreaking um, uh, event. And an event that, I mean, in many ways, um, people tell stories about how it transformed uh, the Mexican experience. Like I have a collection of testimonials <laughs> of like, and which is a thing that you can have because there are so many of them. Like people are like, assembling these materials to talk about what the life of that earthquake was and what it meant when the like um the the uh the armed forces were not 
able to act in rapid response when um, various kinds of um, for various kinds of organizational reasons, um, the the folks in Mexico City who experienced that quake felt abandoned, had no um, no aid uh, in the first hours or days after that event and had to support each other. I mean, it seems when I read these things um, and when I read like accounts of how, you know, they, people felt a new kind of social fabric, how people were encountering each other in new ways in ways that, um, you know, there are these journalists and, and commentators have uh, also been involved in the testimonial genre and are also like writing these beautiful things about what like was happening socially. There's like something for me says like, hey, you know, these people were already organizers, right? These people are already working in, in solidarity with each other. These people have these skills. Of course, like, I bring this to some of the people I interviewed and as I, as I show in the book, they're like, yeah, no, <laughs> it's different. And one of the reasons I bring this up and one of the reasons I expose this process of sort of connection making and testing and response in the book is because I want to be very um, deliberate about showing the book as a process of stringing together a certain kind of story with a certain kind of evidence that makes sense um, that other kinds of participants, um, other kinds of observers, commentators might at different points um, either straight up disagree with or just find different stories more relevant to tell. Um, and this really is, if I have kind of an interdisciplinary uh, intellectual project, is kind of um, about, like, this kind of what it's about, right, is making evident and clear certain moments of, like, engagement, co-thinking, and divergence that are always possible, even when we're doing this very serious, um, you know, anthropological work that if we are to kind of take seriously like the multiplicity of encounter with like our field sites with the stories we tell then naturally like well maybe not naturally but then it seems really important to me to tell these stories both about like um both about like the the stories that make sense to me to tell and also the stories about divergence and the stories about um about moments of, of, of disagreement, um, to open up space for, um, for that possibility for um, the different kinds of readers I may have. If that... No, and I think it gives, uh, really gives historical temporal depth and opens up the connections of what you're talking about in the present. It creates these links, right? That travel in time and space and across disciplines. It's so wild that, like, sorry, <laughs> no, 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 but no, like yeah. that, that thought about like creating links that travel in time and space is is like really is a really nice way of putting that. I think because um, the ways that evidence piles up of the kinds of histories that we live with, that um, the ways that our experience also accrues. And that we try to make 
that we use to try to make sense of the evidence around us is, I mean, it's a, it's a really powerful theme in the book for me, um, thinking about what, how, how sense is made. Um, and I think that that's one of the, like, one of the wonderful things that we can do when we are, um, when we are doing, um, like ethnographic research is we are prepared to kind of ask those questions and prepared to be really uncomfortable with some of the answers. I think that's a good segue to the next question. Um, the book really puts emphasis on what it means to live with constant minor earthquakes and failed alerts, as well as the many difficulties that engineers face when developing the alert system, SASMEX, which is the, the, the alert system you're describing here, which is an angle I really appreciate. So in chapter two, for instance, you say there are no disasters in this chapter, and chapter four unpacks a system malfunction. Can you tell us why you decided to focus on these everyday experiences and challenges rather than, say, major earthquakes or technological breakthroughs? I mean, it's for a couple reasons, right? It's a good question and a question a lot of people have. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's really... Um, it can be really hard to think about the way that people live with earthquakes because, I mean, we have certain kinds of go-to stories, certain kinds of like just so stories, whatever that we can tell that are, are easy. And they're also like not true, but they're really easy and they get deployed all over the place. And sometimes that's like a kind of a mythologized story about how people live with the earth. And they're like, once upon a time, people like had this way of living and everything was fine, right? And they just knew stuff and everything was totally, <laughs> totally like chill and copacetic. Um, or uh, that tell a, more a unified story of like social sense-making, social response, like everybody does the right thing or alternatively ignorance. Like, and this is something that I've, that I've actually heard people say along with the, the kind of mythologized sort of, um, gosh, the, the fetishized sort of indigenous past of, of like total, total sync with, you know, you know, like what I mean. Um, but I've also heard people tell stories about like a unifying ignorance, like people just people are just fatalistic, they just don't get it, like period, the end. And all of those stories are useful rhetorically, and they do certain kinds of work. What I noted also is that when I waded into like, more recently when I waded into kind of the applied research world of like, well, how the hell do you do earthquake safety? Well, what is it, a warning system? Like, I love that, like super nerdy, like getting into the details of the technology stuff. Also, it's like, it's really fun. Yeah. Like you made the little, like, little <laughs> gesture. Yeah. Like, I mean, this book is about people, but at the same time, like, I remember when I was putting together my dissertation at some points, like people would say like, so dude, are you going to tell a story about any people? But I just get so, it's a really charismatic um, technology, which is, I mean, like that's, that's like an interesting fact, you know, right. I was like, let me tell you how it works. And they were like, we are, we do not care. <laughs> like, dude. Um, but, but, but point here and the point is that when you get into the like how does this stuff work um you can see how 
uh, stories are told, especially by people who are like really into the itsy bitsy, like how, like process of the tech processes, either in terms of a technology success or failure, um, and tend to be in terms of an existing event, which can be like deeply, deeply techno optimistic. Like it's like one event, like is, is the be all end all and everything's great. Or, um, like the, the, the sort of underlying logic is if we just like, I mean, you and I agree that the tech stuff is cool, but if you just nail down the tech thing, everything else is going to fall into place is like, that's, that's nonsense. <laughs> like that's impossible. Um, and so a lot of, I think there are practical reasons why sometimes, um, different kinds of, like studies will focus on really, really like, um, time delimited, uh, issues. Right. So um, they'd be like, OK, does did this event work or not? What were people's responses to it? Um, and that has to do with like probably how much how how quicker and how much easier it is to do a survey, even like a bad one. I mean, good surveys are hard to do. Right. But it's it's much easier to do a survey than to do a deep qualitative <laughs> study. <laughs> and so those are the stories that are circulating. Um, and people would, um, kind of ask me, you know, does the system work or does it not work? <laughs> and I was like, that's, that's not like the right question. That's like, that's like, that's a fundamentally wrong question about this kind of risk mitigation technology. The, a better question is maybe what is entailed with like certain kinds of experts understanding of what it's going to take to make this work. And like, Maybe also like, why is that? Um, and like, what are the, the, the sort of underpinnings of that? And maybe if you want to get really, really practical, why is that an essential like betrayal of their commitment to help people? <laughs> because they are, I mean, the, the, many of the people that I spoke to, many of the people, my colleagues that I work with are both deeply committed to making something that might save lives or, or aid people. And deeply under-resourced and under-supported for doing the actual kinds of like broad contextual work, be it like education, public engagement, all that stuff that it would take to put that like techno-optimistic, cool little fiddly fiddly thing in a network of social practice in which it could be successful by its own definition. Um, so I get like a little bit fired up about that because I think it's really messed up. Um, I somehow like as a, as like a teacher of engineers and applied scientists, I've like gone from like, man, these engineers and applied and scientists are, are like doing things in a way I think is really foolhardy to like, who let these people come out here with all the like passion in their heart and like set them up to fail this bad. <laughs> like that sucks. That's garbage. And I think that, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the, 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 um, the real feeling I have after this kind of engagement that I've, that I've been able to have with some of these like incredibly cool folks, um, who are not, uh, who are, who are able to talk about, a system in terms of like its success or its failure or one event. I mean, those are important things to talk about, but I think that in order to do like to 
build a, a robust success or a robust utility, if that is indeed your goal, which like, I mean, whatever, I'm here in my like, little ivory tower office, like that's not my job. <laughs> but like, by their own definitions, they're, they're kind of set up to, um, to not necessarily succeed with those tools by those definitions. And I think understanding life with earthquakes, thinking in terms of how people are navigating living with um, all kinds of earthquakes that can happen at all different sizes. Like in, in Mexico, the way this technology, this early warning technology is set up, um, you can um, get a warning um, sometimes a minute or even more before an earthquake hits you. Um, but that is if the earthquake starts um, way usually off to the west or the south um, and if it is very strong and if you are in Mexico City <laughs> and if any of those things is kind of different, the, the, the warning is not going to work that way. Um, you might not get a warning. You might get a warning with a couple seconds to spare. Um, and it's kind of like, and also like systems are always going to break down. Like that's what tech does. There's like no world that I have ever encountered in which like a technical system just like works and we can just assume it'll work. Like we get on, we, now we get on the zoom, right? We get on the call like 10 minutes before it starts. And if it's serious, we like actually test all of our things and we do the little zoom thing and we test all the microphones and all that because we know that it's like, there are, there's a chance it's going to break. And because that's what it does, like points of failure just kind of happen. And if we are thinking in terms of like, if we are thinking that that's not going to happen, then I don't know what kind of like life with technologies we're actually imagining. Um, so, right. Uh, that's like my commitment to talking about breakdown or like weird experiences with earthquakes or weird experiences with the, um, the alert itself is really based on that. Um, I also really wanted to talk about um, like doing things wrong, <laughs> right? So in one of the chapters, um, I have kind of like an autoethnographic vignette about me and some friends of mine, like totally failing to be good at responding to an earthquake warning. And I don't offer it as like a, like a, shaking my finger at us all, like, how dare we? But instead, as a reminder that in, um, in like, kind of practical risk mitigation work, there's often like the thing you should do. And there can be some kinds of, um, I don't know, like some kinds of deriding people who do not do the, the official, the thing, the thing that we're supposed to do, while at the same time, a lot of us don't do the thing that we're supposed to do. And yeah, right. Like, of course, but as you say, you need an education awareness, all sorts of programs for people to know exactly how to react to these systems. And I think the frustration, I was talking to a Mexican friend asking about the system. She lives in Mexico city and she Ooh, was, what did she think? She was like, Oh yeah, it doesn't work. But, and then I asked her, but would you rather not have it? And she was in her reply was, of course not. I want it to work well. Mm -hmm. So that's where the frustration comes from. It sounds like, you know, people want, a better system, not a no system. And that's a process. And you're showing the process, you're showing all the hiccups and and how difficult it is to make it work. And I think that people don't really like, 
it's really hard to figure out that a system, a technological system, is not just one thing, right? It's made, it's like heterogeneously uh, integrated, managed. And so it's really hard to apportion, like, to declare what doesn't work and what is the system. Like, it is super, super hard to do that. It's super important to the people involved, right? So your your um your Mexican friend could say like, "Hey, this system doesn't work," and then like probably the way she doesn't want somebody to respond is like, "No, no, no, but that's not our responsibility. But the part that you're talking about is not my job." But <laughs> if she said that to somebody who is like deeply involved and deeply passionate about running things, that very well might be the response she got. Because she's talking about a thing. This guy is so angry about how much it breaks down and he literally can't fix it. And it's not my job. <laughs> so it, um, so there's, there's kind of that, this way in which the language we have for like works and doesn't work is really not, in, not like is the language we want to go to, but is maybe not the, 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 a language that serves us in communicating big about how people live with, with earthquakes. Um, I will say also this question about like knowing what to do is like only part of the thing, right? Like we can know what to do and not do it. Like I am not entirely, I'm not that kind of rational actor. Like I know a lot of things, (laughs) but, um, and I think that are, especially when we're thinking about what, um, you know, like the, the, the science versus or sort of and science in public kind of thing is there's a lot of like problems around that question of like, how do we both respect a public as um, or publics, right, as like um, people who can make their own decisions and who should be trusted and who like are, are not idiots, right? How can we both, how can we share knowledge with these people and also note that sometimes we are idiots or like sometimes we're just like, we just don't care. Sometimes we're drunk or sometimes we're confused or sometimes we're tired or sometimes we're not feeling it. Like, and I think that a lot of people are puzzling there. I see my students puzzle there, right? About like how to both, how to share knowledge and not ex without expecting compliance. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the relationship between science and engineering. Yes. Uh, so there is this delightful discussion in chapter five about the distinction between science and engineering. And as you explained there, sometimes the work at CIDES, the NGO that manages SASMEX, looks a lot like science, but people there keep bringing up this idea of measuring like an engineer. Mm -hmm. Um, You seem to suggest that the distinction between science and engineering might be more about commitments and priorities than the practices per se, which I found very, very thought-provoking and interesting. Could you say more about this tension between science and engineering? Why were you drawn to this puzzle? Sure, I'd love to. Um, So first, um, I think that it should be said that it wasn't necessarily that I was drawn to this puzzle, but that the people that I was talking to really were committed to explaining to me and making clear to me that this puzzle was at the heart of some of the work that they were doing. So when I write about, and they they tell like silly jokes about the nature of engineering and science, and they give more serious typologies, um, 
but it was their interest that sent me into this space, um, into a space of um, first that involved digging into the, the histories of science and engineering in Mexico, which kind of takes some really, um, I don't know, powerful uh, tours through the kind of work that Spain made the Mexican colony do for, 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 for Spain, in which the, the work of mineral and then um, extraction, so, so silver mining really, um, became uh, a way or channeled the kinds of professionalization and training that Mexicans could, could achieve, um, right? And, and which had real consequences for the formation of Mexican intellectuals for the formation of Mexican and uh, Mexican, uh, what am I saying? Uh, uh, institutions. Um, but then eventually that also brought me to this space where I am today, where I'm a part of a community in engineering studies, who of community of people who are kind of asking questions about the nature of engineering as a, as a discipline. So people like um, Amy Bix and Amy Slayton and Matt Wisniewski, Wisniewski, excuse me, Gary Downey, um, Jessica Smith, um, Juan Lucena, John Lydon, Steve Newsma, Marie Klein, Alex Mejia, like all these really cool people, uh, some of whom are, um, are trained as engineers as well as STS scholars or anthropologists who are, and historians who are trying to think about like, okay, what is, what the heck is this discipline and what is it doing? And this matters for us sort of intellectually as we, as we think about the ways the world is, the ways the world could be, um, right? And also in really practical ways, especially for those of us who are involved in um, the project of engineering education. Um, so understanding engineering as a kind of as a kind of identity project that is produced and reproduced, but that is also an achievement as a um, mode of producing a certain orientation towards the world that is often referred to as mindsets um, that may be related to particular approaches to um, projects of um, what we call problem definition and then solution and I'm doing like finger quotes because, <laughs> <laughs> because these are these are like these are emic terms um that are always like already class gendered raced and related to certain kinds of industries certain kinds of goals in the U.S. super militarized in Mexico too right um but the the work of understanding and then like implementing those understandings for to to give us some insight into like what the heck we're doing when we're educating these people <laughs> is like is super interesting um and for any readers who are um or li listeners for any listeners who are, who are into it um i super recommend um there's an interview that i think lee vinsel did with donna riley a couple weeks ago or was published a couple weeks ago in the new books network um, it's the people and things. Uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. I really, so the story that Donna Riley tells, Donna Riley is a really, really interesting thinker and, and practitioner. She's, um, she is a 
fascinating mover and shaker in engineering education and framing what the possibilities for what that can be here in the U.S. Um, the story she tells about movements for engineering, social justice, and peace, and for dramatically changing engineering um, are really, not only like really fascinating, right? And John, and Donna is like in the, I mean, she's, she's like, um, I don't know. She's, she's established, right? But she's, she's doing the work. She's like in the trenches. She's also deeply um, intellectually committed to this kind of like feminist queer revisioning project of this whole discipline. And she's very conscious of the fact that it's possible, <laughs> right? To push the boundaries of how we can train uh, students to make these technological choices, but not do so in a totally techno-optimistic way, not reproduce some of those, you know, like ideas about what, uh, that, that like the technical and the social should be totally divided. And that's like some sort of natural thing um, to like, maybe not be positivists to like, not be um, to, to not be techno chauvinistic in certain kinds of ways. Uh, so I've kind of in my, in my like work after graduation fallen into collaborating on that kind of project that, that Donna um, describes there. Um, and I find it really, really intellectually stimulating. So, um, yeah, there's the the question of like what to do, like an engineer or like a scientist, is like really, really pregnant and really, really matters to um, a lot of people who are practicing and who are trying to reconfigure practice. Just an aside, I remember learning about this network, engineering, social justice, and peace in Brazil. Yeah. Is this from Latin America? What's the origin? Um, is it an organization? It is. It is. Um, it is highly active in Latin America. I think like Colombians are really, really doing a lot. Brazilians are doing some. Um, it is a really interesting, it's a fascinating space. I think that some of the founders are, um, the, the, the founding story, I have it inkling of the story, but I don't want to tell the version I have because I'm worried I'm going to get a lot wrong. But, um, a lot of the people, because a lot of the people I collaborate with were like involved in its founding and maybe are less involved now or differently involved. But um, that network has meant so much to so many people. We can leave it as a reference and people can look it up. Yeah, I <laughs> encourage people to do so. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a fascinating group and they have their own journal and they publish all sorts of stuff. You also describe engineers doing fieldwork, uh, which for an anthropologist is very exciting to read. So early in the book, you talk about the maintenance visits performed by engineers as these educational opportunities and moments of exchange. And then later, chapter six is entirely dedicated to encounters between these same engineers who are mostly from Mexico City and rural populations. How is it for you to observe them doing field work? Did you see yourself in their practice in any way? Did this prompt any meta self-reflections about anthropology or your own research? I was curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, I didn't really get to see a lot of field work. I was invited not to come on field work. I think you were invited not to come. I was invited not to come. <laughs> and for for very 
practical reasons, right? This is this is um, a dangerous project uh, and a project that um, I could endanger more by my my presence, um, especially in certain places in rural Mexico. Uh, somebody like me is is pretty symbolic. Um, I'm a pretty blonde woman, and um, I stand out in rural Mexico. Although I, I'm actually everybody else is my height. Finally, so I don't stand out that way. That's nice. Um, but uh, the work of field work, um, maintaining, developing, maintaining these these um, field stations that the um, technology that is at the center of this book um, sort of uh, uh, requires is is largely done by technicians, um, young men usually from um, Mexico City who spent all their lives in Mexico City. And so going out to the field is this great opportunity for them to, um, first of all, do like this complicated kind of sense-making in which they overlap kinds of like highly documented specific knowledge projects about like what kind of um, seismic activity might be going on about what kind of maintenance any station might require um, about which, which is like photographed and, and um, things are confirmed. People are called in, you know, like everything is super, super documented. And then these other kinds of, of sensing and sense-making activities that involve kind of feeling out if a town feels weird, like if it feel, if things feel like they might be dangerous, if, um, for example, if, if, a, 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 if it seems like that group of folks might actually be a dangerous militia right, that they need to um, avoid entirely. And that's the sort of thing that they can't document in the same way, but is also necessary to their to their work, like getting entry to these to these very, very out of the way spaces in order to make this kind of uh, like this kind of deeply specific seismic knowledge possible. Um, also, these these technicians are responsible for certain kinds of um, negotiation, right? Like, how are they going to get to these stations? Who owns the land? What might that person want this time? Might they want um, some kind of payment? Might there be some sort of commitment to educate the locals and let them know what's going on? Um, that just brings them in contact, into contact with, um, with people living in places that they may never have been before. And yeah, like, so this is, this is what we're talking about, these projects of field work. I'm trying to remember, I had a professor said once, never do anything in field work you wouldn't do in normal life. Ooh, that's good. I thought it was very helpful. Yeah. yeah. So unfortunately, we have to wrap up. We're close to one hour now. Um, to finish our conversation, now that the book is out in the world... Are there any new projects you're excited about? What can we expect to read from you in the future? Uh, so um, I've been working on, I've been chewing on a couple different projects that are super fun. Um, I've been thinking a lot about um, engineering pedagogy. Um, so I've got, I'm working with a team to think about like 
socio-technical integration. Um, no, environment isn't in there for, for reasons, right? Um, and I'm working with another team thinking about STS as a form of critical ped pedagogy. I've started a position as the associate director of our master's program here um, in that's called humanitarian engineering and science. Um, that's a really kind of it does interesting political work, kind of naming it that, and it's positioned between different kinds of different disciplines, um, but founded in um, sort of designed by in part anthropologists and STS scholars. Um, so I'm working on that. Um, and I'm also, I continue to work on earthquakes. So I've got some work coming out about um, earthquake risk mitigation technology um, and earthquake data and kind of how it's used how we make sense of earthquakes and with whom have been has been a real uh, question for me. And I'm um, getting rolling on a project about um, scientists, activists in um, the geosciences and how folks are envisioning and maybe re-envisioning um, what the what the geos is in um in academia and research and what it can be and what it should be um so those are the things that i am most excited about uh and they're they're all kind of lumped together in my head as like this one kind of geo engineering practice collaboration kind of thing but um it's it's some pretty fun stuff yay sounds very exciting uh, we look forward to seeing more and thank you so much beth thank you for having me liliana this was super fun <laughs>